Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. All right. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. Welcome back, everybody all around the world. Welcome back to uh, the Letters from Our Founding Fathers podcast. Uh, broadcasting here and also broadcasting over at patreon.com slash podcasts with Roman. You can uh, get an additional podcast that I do over there. That's my revenue generating podcast over there. And uh, so anyway, welcome back to uh, this episode. This is going to be episode number 33. Hope you enjoyed the previous episode. And this is going to be another short-form episode. We will have another feature-length episode on the Monday drop next uh, next mon- Monday, that is. And thank you to all you folks out there who share the podcast with, uh, with other folks and get the word out about the podcast. I really appreciate that. Uh, so today we're going to talk about good government. Why are we going to talk about good government? Well, because I've spent the last few episodes just beating government <laughs> senseless, basically, just constantly ragging on government, really going on a tear about tyrannical government. And the reason why that is, by the way, is because that's just the time period we're in. Uh, we're in a particularly dark period of time for the Founding Fathers, 1774 to 75. It's pretty bad. Uh, this is the this is the time period right before people start dying, and that's not a joke. That's not to be taken lightly, um, and I don't take it lightly, which is why the podcast episodes have been so serious uh, as of late. It's a it's a very serious thing. Any time people start getting killed by their own military uh, citizens, that is, start getting killed by their own military, then then I, th- I think it's a, a very serious issue. But uh, this this we're going to take a break from the seriousness of that. For the most part. And we're going to talk about good government. What makes good government? And do forgive me if my voice seems a little bit tired. I, I can al- I can almost hear it while I'm recording because I, I have my headphones on and I can, I can hear it come back through my ears. But uh, my voice is a little bit tired today because I, I had a particularly long day at work and that tends to happen. Sometimes I end up recording these episodes on a work day because uh, I work during the week just like everybody else. And um, sometimes I record these episodes on a weekend and sometimes it's on a weekday. When it's on a weekday, there's always the, that chance that I, that I run that my voice is just going to sound really tired. And today, I think, is one of those days. Maybe it doesn't sound too bad on the recording. I don't know. We'll find out. So what makes good government? Well, first, I guess I'll answer the question. Can government be good? Because some folks, I mean, judging by the way I talk, might get the impression that there's no such thing as good government in my eyes. But that's not true. I do think there can be good government. It's just really hard. Uh, Bad government is really easy. It's really easy to do because that's the natural state of government is to be evil and dark and predatory, like I've described before. To be the uh, the uncontrollable animal, the beast, out there hunting uh, its own constituency, trying to uh, cannibalize its population for its own power and wealth. That's the natural tendency of government. The unnatural tendency of government is to be good government. It's very unnatural, very unusual. It's like trying to capture lightning in a bottle. Well, maybe not quite that hard, but it, it's difficult. But yes, it can work. And we've seen that in the United States. We've seen good government in the United States, which makes us uh, a lot a lot more blessed than a lot of countries. There's plenty of countries out there that have never seen good government. I mean, really good government. Uh, when I think about that, I think Russia. I mean, you, you talk about a group of people who've just really had the short end of the stick. And some people could say it's their fault, but I mean, they suffered under... Uh, the Muscovite princes back in the day. I mean, back, well, back in the day, back during the time of the Muscovite princes, they were actually under the, the command, the, under the rule of a foreign power, the Tatars, uh, for a time which wasn't very pleasant. And after that, they eventually kind of fought off the Tatars and gained a kind of independence of sorts. And then they had the, again, the, the local principalities and whatnot. Moscow be- be- became one of the, uh, 
the chief kingdoms, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it, as best I recall. And then, uh, of course, eventually that segued into the Tsar, which was a very unpleasant time for a lot of people in Russia. The Russian people were largely serfs at the time, which is another, which is kind of a, another word for slave. They were slaves to their to their own government, more or less. Treated very horribly by the Tsar. The Tsar was not a uh, a pleasant ruler. None of them really were. They were all terrible for the most part. I mean, we talk about Ivan the terrible, but honestly, all of them were terrible. Even Peter. Uh, Tsar Peter, who was known as being one of the better ones, he was intelligent, he was very sharp, and he knew what, he knew what he was doing as far as management of the uh, the government. He was very, very intelligent, and he really kind of raised Russia up to be a, a little bit more of a modern, modern for the time. But, um... He had his own problems. I don't think he was. He wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't all about liberating the people. Let's just put it that way. And then eventually, of course, the czars in the uh, early 1900s went the way of the dinosaur and went during the uh, the Red Revolution. And then that god awful Soviet Empire was created out of that. And the so and the Russian people suffered horribly under the Soviet Union, uh, very badly in the beginning, especially under Lenin and Stalin. That was the worst of it, I think, because Stalin was an absolute madman. And then it honestly it it got a little bit better. I think, when Stalin was out of the way, but it was still miserable, in my opinion. Some people can disagree with me. There's probably people who lived through it in Russia and say, oh, no, it was fantastic. Okay. I mean, the shortages, the, the, the gulag and all the rest of it, the secret police and all the... Okay, yeah, that was great, KGB and all that. Yeah, okay. Well, if you like that kind of stuff, I guess it's good. But in my personal opinion, it was pretty horrible. And then, of course, you know, fast forward to the 1990s, and that go that goes away, and then you kind of have this brief period of, you know, reformation, more for lack of a better way of putting it, where they tried to bring up, bring they they brought in the market economy, which was a good thing. And and don't get me wrong, it's not like it's truly horrible right now, like it was back during the Czar and the early days of the Soviet Revolution, all the rest of it. But do I think that Russia really has it great right now? Not necessarily. Um, it's just it's been pretty bad in Russia. So thank goodness you don't have that in the United States of America. America. Um, but could it get that way in the United States? Oh, yeah, it could get that way in a heartbeat. Take about five seconds. I mean, if you really want to know how fast a government can turn around, about five seconds. That's all it takes. Take your eye off the ball and it can get that way. But, you know, so good government can exist. We've obviously seen examples of bad government, but good government can exist. But what makes a good government? You know, good government, I think, is made up. Well, I guess a principal thought that I have about good government is it's government on a very short leash. <laughs> for lack of a better way of putting it, government on a very short leash because you got to really keep government under control. A good government is a government under control. And historically, the United States government has largely been under control for at least a good portion of America's history. Not so much anymore, but at least for a while it was. And the Constitution is what helped keep it under control. That conflict between the three branches of government helped keep it under control for a time. The state governments uh, versus the general government helped keep that under control for a time. It still kind of works that way. You see that when the states sue the federal government in some particular kind of way. That's that's that battle between the state governments and the general government. When I say general government, I mean the federal government. The founding fathers called it the general government, so that's why I call it that. All of those things try to keep things in balance. Now, sometimes that all that stuff just serves to be divisive, and it's unproductive, but a lot of times it's meant to try to establish that balance. Now, I say government, good government is a government on a short leash. The problem with that is, is 
over time, like I said, the natural tendency of the government is to be predatory. So eventually over time, that leash just gets longer and longer and longer. And eventually the animal that is the government is not just walking around in the backyard anymore. It's actually it's actually outside the backyard, wandering around the neighborhood, and it's getting ready to walk outside the city limits. That's a problem. So, you, so good government is a, is a government that doesn't do that, doesn't get off the leash, and doesn't gradually make that leash longer and longer as time goes on. Got to keep an eye on that kind of stuff. If you can do that, you know, if you can keep an eye on all that stuff and you can make sure and you can keep government under control, then you can have a good government. Absolutely. And did the gut, did the founding fathers create a good government? I'll answer that question. And we're going to have longer conversations about this, by the way, when we start talking about some of the topics much later on in the podcast. This is going to, this conversation is going to come back again. This is really just kind of a short version of this conversation. I, I felt like I wanted to do it because, again, I had been, I had been spending so much time just tearing, tearing into government, tyrannical government specifically over the last few episodes, and rightfully so. But do I think the government, the, the Founding Fathers created good government? Well, in some respects, yes. In some respects, no. What do I mean by that? I think the general government, as it was originally constituted, was fairly good. And again, when I say general government, I mean federal government. I think it was fairly good. Now, we didn't. they didn't just create the federal government. They also created the state governments. And that's kind of a hodgepodge of good and bad, in my opinion. People, you know, again, I tried to impress this upon everybody in a previous episode. The governments of this country, state governments and the general government, looked very, very different than they do today. Um, they, it's changed quite a bit and not necessarily for the better. Things have gotten worse in a great many respects in this country as far as government is concerned, in my opinion. And some things have gotten better, but not very many. A lot more has gotten worse than gotten better. But, you know, when you think, because again, when you think about the way the country was originally created, the, the federal government was fairly inconsequential. People have a hard time imagining that today, where the federal government is just this inconsequential kind of backwater station of government. But that's the way it was in the beginning. Some people might disagree with me on that, but I would I would challenge you to look at the size of the federal budget and look at the numbers of federal employees and just look at how these people spent their time. And what was the president focused on? What was he not focused on? And why was it possible? I mentioned this in a previous episode. Why was it possible for ordinary citizens to walk up to the White House and try to get a meeting with the president? Why, why was that even, how was that even possible? There's an answer to that question. And, and the, the answer, and, and the short of it is, is the president wasn't as busy as he is today. I mean, try, just try to get a meeting with your senator or your congressman. Even those people are really too busy to even talk to you. I mean, in some cases, try to get a meeting or a, 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 to make a visit with your state house representative. Half the time, you can't even do that. Why? Because government has just gotten its finger into every pie. And it's busy. And it's doing a lot of stuff. And it doesn't have time for you. Isn't that kind of a, isn't that kind of a problem? It used to be government had time for you. You know, if you wanted to meet with one of these people, it wasn't terribly difficult to do that back in the day. But uh, these days, very, very difficult to do for some people. I mean, if you've got a checkbook and a, attached to a very large bank account, it's not hard then. That tells you a lot about our system, isn't it, by the way? And there's another example of bad government. Good government is a government that doesn't require you to have a checkbook attached to a very large bank account to get a meeting with a senator. That's good government. But uh, anywho, I think the Founding Fathers did a pretty good job on the one hand. They did a bad job in some other ways. And I'm going to get into the weeds on that later on down the road. I'm going to talk in detail about that. But, you know, there there was a lot of good things done. And as far as the general government goes, I think the Founding Fathers did the best with what they had for the most part. They're, they're, I think they really kind of screwed some stuff up, for lack of a better way of putting it. I, I really do. And there's a couple reasons for that. One... Nobody had really ever tried government quite like this before. 
Similar, yes, there had been republics before, not democracies. Again, this podcast is where democracy goes to die, because the Founding Fathers did not create a democracy, nor would they have ever created a democracy. They they did did not want that. If they wanted that, they would have created that, but they didn't. They created a republic. But I think they looked back at the historic republics that they had known, the Republic of Rome and elsewhere, and they tried to create something modeled on that in some ways, but they had to make something different because they had to fix a lot of the problems that they saw with Rome, with the British Empire, and with Greece, and all these other places that they looked at. And given the information that they had at the time, they they did a pretty decent job. Could they have done better? Oh yeah, yeah, they could have done better. I think they did a pretty decent job of it, though, considering what they were working with. And it it was a flexible enough system. I mean, it still survives today. 250 years later, almost. I mean, Constitution, obviously, not quite. It hasn't been around quite as long as the founding of the country. We're coming up on the 250-year. I say 250 years. Obviously, I'm rounding up. We're coming up on that. And uh, 2026 will be 250 years since the founding of the country. 1776, that is. But, you know, with 250 years of hindsight, I can see all the problems with the, what the Founding Fathers did. And it's important, you know, I don't want to judge the Founding Fathers too harshly because, again, I have the benefit of 250 years of hindsight and they didn't. So I can see where the problems are from my from my uh, my, my perspective and my opinion. And my, my perspective is not everybody's perspective, but I can see problems with what they did. You know, of course I can. I'm 250 years in the future. Some people judge the Founding Fathers and the government that they created 250 years from the future, and they're very they're very um, stupid, for lack of a better way of putting it, about how they do it. They don't they don't think to themselves, oh yeah, I, I've got 250 years of hindsight on the Founding Fathers. Of course, I know, I know things a little bit differently than they do. I know how things turned out. They didn't know how things were going to turn out. So be be careful how you how you judge the Founding Fathers and what they did. But yeah, I think they did create a pretty good government in the general government. The state governments, again, it's it's a it's a it's a mixed bag with me. I really don't think some of those state governments were well constituted in my opinion. I really don't. I think there were there were huge problems that were unresolved at the time and they needed to be fixed. And they they should have been fixed at the state level because that's where a lot of those problems should be fixed, but they weren't. But there were some other there were some states I think that were founded from the beginning to be fairly good, you know, fairly good. Not not too much of a problem with them. But yeah, government under control, government on a short leash, all of that is all of that is good government. And we have seen that in the United States before, and that's a good thing. And we should endeavor to try to make sure things adhere to that principle. And the short leash, as far as the general government goes, the short leash comes in the the short leash comes in the Constitution, right? The Constitution doesn't really give the federal government a whole lot to do. It really doesn't. That's a short leash. And government under control is really in part done by the Bill of Rights, not just the short Constitution, but the uh, the Bill of Rights, saying to the government, "You can't do this." You can't do that. You have to respect this. So on and so forth. That's keeping government under control. Assuming we all hold government's feet to the fire and we actually expect them to follow those rules, which sometimes they don't. But assuming the the government is following the rules, staying on a short leash, and not violating the Bill of Rights or any of the other amendments in that constitution, then I'd say I'd say that's good government right there. It's just really hard to actually make that make that happen because again, you got you're constantly battling against that natural tendency of government to get overbearing and out of control. And government is, you know, we talk about checks and balances in good government, executive, legislative, and judicial, and that's true. You know, you got to have a balanced government to to have good government. There's all there's other checks and balances that people don't commonly talk about, though. They talk about, you know, the three branches of government being checks and balances, but also the state governments are a check on the general government. They're supposed to be. That's 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 kind of the whole point. 
So the states are state governments are really there to try to keep the federal government under control. And another check that's supposed to be there is the people. That would be us. We're supposed to keep the government under control too. Now this has a lot of problems to it, and I'm going to talk about some of those problems. Because the, uh, the people have great responsibilities, and oftentimes those responsibilities are taken not very seriously at all. And what do I mean by that? There's a couple of ways this manifests itself. You know, the electing of representatives to the general government or the state governments. It's really up to the citizens to make sure those are good people, because it's really hard to have good government without good representatives. If you have bad representatives, chances are you're probably going to have bad government. And you have to elect people that actually understand why they're, why they're supposed to be there, and people that aren't corrupt. And corruption is a huge problem in, in governments all, or all throughout history. Corruption has always been a problem, and it's not really focused on that much, and it's really weird. I don't know why. Uh, we talk about it occasionally. There are, there are books occasionally that are written about it, and then there's, there's every once in a while, you know, there's some news stories on it. Of course, you know, the news is largely compromised and questionable at best. But really, just look at, the best thing that you can do as, a, as an individual person to judge whether or not government is corrupt, just take a look at it. Take a long, hard look at it and just listen to what these people are saying. I kind of allude to that when I say things like, when elected representatives, especially presidents and whatnot, when they refer to this country as a democracy, that's kind of a hint. That's kind of a wink and a nod. I, I think in, it's because I've said before, unless these people are stupid, and I don't believe that they're stupid, the only reason why, why an elected representative would call this country a democracy is because they're lying to you. There's a big clue right there. Now people are going to disagree with me. They're going to say, oh, it's not that big a deal. If you call it a democracy, a republic, it's really a, a game of semantics. You know, it's a potato, potato, uh, so on, so No, it's not. I'm telling you, it's not. And thinking that it's just a simple game of words and it's just potato, potato, and all the rest of it, that's that's kind of, that's kind of, I think that's been the genesis of our problems for a long time. But you, you really got to focus on that. You really got to pay attention to this stuff and try to try to keep people who are corrupt out of elected office. You got to keep them out. That's that's a good, that's a big part of good government. If you if you got good people in there who aren't corrupt, you you, got, you stand a pretty good chance of having good government. The problem is, again, most of them are corrupt. <laughs> that, that's, that's a big problem. Oh my gosh, Roman, what are you saying? Are you saying that most... Did, he, did Roman just say that most of these people... Yep, that's exactly what I just said. Uh, so pay attention to that. But to the extent, you know, government isn't corrupt, I mean, you have a really good solid shot at some good government. And that's a good thing. That's a good positive thing uh, to try to aim for. Try to keep that corruption out of there. And uh, you, get, you stand a really good chance. Another big problem, you know, that really... That really comes from the people and their their responsibility to to make sure that we have good government is you know those people who come out of the population and actually do work inside the government you know you have you have all kinds of people who work in government you have the elected people you have the appointed people and then you have the mainline employee types right well one of the big problems that you have with those mainline employee types is that they're just like the general population of the United States. Frankly speaking, and I'm just being perfectly honest here, they don't have the first clue what the United States is, what it's supposed to be, or what it what it was created to be back in the past. They don't have the first clue because they don't take the time to study the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, or the writings of the Founding Fathers. They just don't care. And that's a problem. I mean, how do you have a how do you have a group of people doing that kind of work who have no clue what this country is supposed to be? I mean, they have their own ideas what it's supposed to be, but they don't really know what it's supposed to be. I mean, we can't we can't have a country that survives when everybody just kind of makes up how, what they want this country to be. Everybody has their own thoughts on that. That's not that's not how this works. It's supposed to have a a central theme, a you know central core values uh, that we uh, that we that we go by. I would call that an ethos. Uh, a country should have an ethos. 
What is an ethos? It's basically a, a set of beliefs, values, a guiding principle, that kind of thing. Yeah, you can't have a government that's run by a bunch of people who e everybody has their own compass, and they're all headed in opposite directions. It doesn't really work out that way. So a good government is, is made up of an educated people, you know, people who understand history. Just like a good, you know, to have good government, the population of the people really have to be educated and they have to understand history. I've talked about that before. You know, and there's there's all those quotes from history that we that we talk about. You know, history repeats itself. Those who don't understand history are doomed to repeat it. And then that thing that I always say, you know, if you want to understand today and tomorrow, you have to understand yesterday. All of us who study history, who talk about this, we all agree with each other. Every one of us. We seem to have uh, we seem to have a consensus here that uh, the study of history is important. And why is it that has been lost? By the way, I'm just going to kind of segue off on that. So you know, and this is this is a good concept to keep in mind for good government. This is re this really should inspire everybody to study history and to make sure that their children study history as well. Why is it you know that we um, we've gotten away from that? Why is history such a problem for the United States of America? And honestly, I think it's a problem for everybody all around the world. I think history has largely been forgotten as a subject. Now, why is that? And I conceptualize it you know in one particular scenario. Like, imagine you have a 17-year-old kid who's getting his first job, or 18 or 19, or whatever the case may be, getting his first job. And let's say it's uh, at a restaurant. Let's say it's a Burger King restaurant or something like that. Does that individual need to know about Napoleon's march into Russia and the absolute disaster that that was to be able to jockey a register at Burger King? The answer to the question is, of course, no. It's, it's People would say, of course not. That's ridiculous. Why would he need to know that to work at that restaurant? Okay. But he does need to know that 2 and 2 makes 4, and he does need to know that 10 divided by 2 equals 5, right? Okay. So for that reason, you know, math and reading and things like that are high on the priority list for schools. History, on the other hand, dead last. Nobody cares. Except the history teacher, maybe. Other than that, nobody cares. You know why? Because nobody needs to know that to go out and do their job. Almost nobody, unless you're a historian, unless you're a history teacher, unless you write books for a living, you don't need to know any of that. Now, you do need to know that stuff to be a good citizen, in my opinion. Not necessarily Napoleon marching into Russia. I'm not saying that. Unless you live in France or Russia. Then you might want to know that. And honestly, if even if you live in the United States, to be honest with you, there are very important lessons to be learned out of that story. You probably should know it. But is it going to be a catastrophe if you don't? Probably not. But yeah, if you live in Russia, probably better know that story because it happened in Russia. And if you, uh, if you want to know how... Uh, how a regime in France can be completely destroyed. And if you live in France, you might want to understand Napoleon. But, you know, for the United States, it's certainly going to be that. And But more, you know, the core issues are going to be other things. The problem is, is, you know, that people don't connect those two things. They don't connect good government with the study of history. They really don't. At least in most circles, they don't. If they, if they did, then we would spend a lot more time talking about that problem, but we don't. As a society. And so whether you're talking about the citizen who needs to be who needs to understand history to be to know who to vote for and who not to vote for? Uh, you know, it's it that 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 concept's been lost. You wonder why most of the the elected representatives in the country are corrupt. In my opinion, that's probably why. That, or that's, at least that's one of the reasons why. One of the big ones. Most people just don't know who to vote for because they you know if you don't understand the lessons of history. And again, those who don't understand history are doomed to repeat it. And some people might disagree with me that history is such a uh, it has been so so much lost in this country, but I want you to think about this. Look at the test scores in this country for math, reading, and science. And you're going to see, go, just go out and do some research and look at those test scores, and you're going to find that they're fairly low, you know, by, by the standards of the day. And compared to certain other countries, 
the United States is pretty low on the pecking order when it comes to that kind of thing. And think and understand that math, reading, and science are high priorities in school, and history is not a priority at all. So if our test scores in this country are so bad, and they are, with math, reading, and science, imagine, just imagine for a moment, how terrible the education is in history in this country. And you can begin to really understand why things have gotten so askew as they have, and why it's so hard to maintain good government. And again, like I mentioned on a previous episode, why this country tears itself apart every four years voting for President of the United States. That shouldn't happen. How has it gotten to that point where this country almost literally tears itself apart every four years? There's a reason for it. And it's important to figure that because, I mean, again, we got to get back to this idea of good government because government can be good. I've talked about this before. You know, it's the government is the is kind of this uh, this meeting place that we have where we get together to do these productive things that we can't do individually or separately, like building the highway systems. I'll talk about this for a little bit. You know, let's talk about some of the good things that government does. The highway system, perfectly good example of that. President Eisenhower, the interstate system, we know about that story, right? What a great idea. What a great idea. You know, I've, there was a story, you know, like back from back before the interstate system was a thing, that it, it would take, you know, sometimes, I forget exactly what the numbers are, it's like a month or a month and a half or something just to get from one end of the country to the next by car. It was ridiculous. And of course, that was before a lot of the major highways were built, too. So we're, talk, we're talking a long time ago. This is way pre-World War II type stuff. And then, of course, you know, better highways were built, which really helped with that problem. And then eventually the interstate highway system. So, I mean, if, you know, with the really good highway system, maybe it would take like a week. For, I'm just guessing at this point. Maybe it'd take a week or so to get from one end of the country to the other. So that cut down the time quite a bit. But, you know, with the interstate system, it shrunk that down to just a couple of days. Great idea. Great idea. There's good government right there. That's a great, that's a fantastic example of good government. Really great. And uh, we all enjoy the interstate system. I know I do. Uh, whenever, when I drive down the interstate, it's usually a pretty good experience. Depends on where you live. I've been in some states. I've been all over this country, by the way. I have literally been from border to border, coast to coast, numerous times. I've been in almost every state in the country. And I can tell you, I can testify as an expert, and I consider myself an expert on this because of how many states I've been in. And when I was in those states, I was driving across, well, I was, I was in a vehicle riding across these states. I was not in an airplane traveling. And I can, I can tell you that, you know, the, the interstate does vary depending on state and so do the highways. But, um, so some states are better at managing that than others. But by and large, it's a pretty good system and it works all right. You know, the military is another one. Military, the military can be an example of good government. Again, I've told you before, I'm very suspicious of a standing army, and I am. Why? Because the founding fathers were. I'm like a, you know, I'm like a student who kind of sits in a classroom listening to the wise old men of the past. And in some cases, those are the founding fathers of the United States, like a Benjamin Franklin or a Samuel Adams, those guys. And I, 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 listen, to, I listen to Mr. Franklin, Dr. Franklin, as, as people would have called him during the day, or uh, Samuel Adams. I, you know, I listen to these guys, and I, I try to soak up the wisdom. And they teach me to be suspicious of a standing army. Some of them, not all of them, but some of them were, were definitely suspicious of a standing army. But, you know, a standing army is a very necessary thing in this day and age, not so much in the days of the Founding Fathers, but today it certainly is. And I think, you know, the United States military has been, by and large, a great example of good government. Not always, but for the most part, yes, I've got my issues with the with the military historically, but uh, I I do uh, I do think the United States military has uh, has been largely a, a good enterprise and a, and a a very uh, expert organization, an organization that really does um, 
focus on technical expertise and, and getting the job done, getting it, getting the job done efficiently in some cases, not so efficiently in others. But you know, it's been it's been all right. As, as big as that as big as that organization is, and as big a job as they have been given to handle, it's pretty it's pretty amazing sometimes how well they do what they do. And in some cases, like I said, there's definitely some wastefulness in there, and there's definitely some problems, and I, I could go over those at length, but that's not really the mission of this podcast. The mission of this podcast is really just to talk about what the Founding Fathers were trying to achieve, and good government is certainly one of those things. And I think we can all say that the you know the military has been, not all of us, I'm sure some people are going to disagree with this, but most of us would probably agree that the military has been, by and large, a, a pretty good enterprise. And a, and a good example a example of good government. And, you know, we did that. The United States created that. We did that together through government. And that's a good thing. That's a beautiful thing. You know, we, we put those, um, we trained those soldiers because we, we, uh, we, you know, together as a country, we built the military bases and we built the infrastructure to support everything. We built the logistics, we built the roads, and we built all this stuff. And then we, uh, we put the aircraft carriers out there in the ocean, and thank goodness for that. And we put the, the submarines out there, and we, we built the tanks, and we built the airplanes. And we gave the, the military the tools that they needed to do the job, and by and large, they, they do a pretty good one. And we can all have our grievance. I know people are going to have their grievances about some things the military does. We all got our grievances about that, but I'm, I'm speaking generally here. We're not going to get too far off into the weeds here. And I'm glad for the for the good aspects of all of that. I really am. I'm very happy for that. I'm glad those aircraft carriers are out there, and I'm I'm glad the submarines are out there, even the nuclear submarines, the, the missile boats, because that's a that's a good deterrent against America's enemies. keeps uh, It keeps people in line. It keeps uh, other countries from doing something stupid. And I'm happy that they're out there, you know, and we all make that happen together through government. We pay for it. You know, if you ever wanted to know where your tax dollars are going, that's that's one of those places where they go. And I don't mind paying for that kind of stuff. I, I like knowing that the uh, the soldiers on the uh, in the military, the, the sailors in the in the Navy, they're getting paid. They have their benefits. They have they have shelter and food and supplies because it's all paid for. And that's an important goal. And we do that together through good government. And there's other there's other ways, you know, that the government does good things too, not just through the interstate system and not just through the military. There's some other good things as well. And that's fantastic, you know, but, you know, when government, government gets away from that sometimes by trying to do this nickel and dime stuff that, frankly, government really has no business doing. When the government tries to micromanage, it tends not to work out very well. Governments really shouldn't be micromanaging too much unless they absolutely have to. And even then, that's really a state government issue for the most part, you know, because each state is going to be different. You know, like I've mentioned, I've talked about this example numerous times before. Alaska is a very different state than most of the other states in the Union. Just because of its geography, its size, it's huge. Alaska is two and a half times, roughly two and a half times the size of Texas. People talk about how big Texas is. Texas doesn't hold a candle compared to Alaska. Now, it's mostly frozen tundra up there. I've been up there before. I know what I'm talking about. It's very cold up there. In the wintertime. Very nice in the summertime in some cases, if you can stay away from the mosquitoes. The old joke up there was was that the, mos the, the mosquito in Alaska was, was the unofficial state bird of Alaska. The mosquitoes up there get so big... Uh, they were designated unofficially the state bird. That's kind of, that's kind of a joke, but that's the, that's that's what people said when I was up there. Anyway, so it's a very different state than than most of the lower 48, and it it knows how to govern itself. And I would say the same thing for California. I would say the same thing for Texas and Maine and Vermont and Connecticut and Massachusetts and Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, etc. So if you want to, if if government needs to micromanage something, hopefully it doesn't. But if it has to, if it absolutely has to, then the state should be doing that. the The federal government doing that kind of thing, it just leads to bad government, in my opinion. 
That's that's not good government at all. Let the let let the federal government stick to the interstate highway system and the military and things of that nature and stay the heck out of everything else. In my opinion, uh, I think that's what the founding fathers intended. Otherwise, again, why even have state governments? Why not just have one big monolithic federal government that micromanages everything? Well, because the founding fathers knew that that was bad government. That's why. That's not good government. Anyway, so that, that gives you some ideas that, you know, yes, government can be good. And I do believe the, the founding fathers put together a pretty good model. Lord knows it needed to be improved upon in certain ways. You know, it really did. I'll give you a perfect example, though. Term limits for the president of the United States. You know, once upon a time, there were no term limits. President, somebody could run for president as often as they wanted to. But George Washington kind of set a precedent of only staying around for two terms. And honestly, I think that's just because he didn't want to stick around for very long. I think he wanted to get back to his farm and just do his do his farm. He was uh, he was one of that's the kind of president you want, by the way. You want a president who just who just goes and does that job because he feels like he has to. And then after that, he just goes back to his farm and his crops. That's what John Adams did, too, by the way. Second president of the United States, same exact thing. After he left office, he just went right back to his farm up there in uh, Braintree, Massachusetts. But George Washington set that precedent of term, uh, of just two terms, and it was largely adhered to. And honestly, I, I think I recall a story that Ulysses Sam Grant, U- U.S. Grant, as he was known, he was a he was a two term president uh, for sure. But I had heard rum I had heard from a history book that I was reading one time. I think he tried to. He, there was the thought that he was going to run for a third term later on, and I forget exactly the details from that. But he might have been one of the first people to try to break that tradition of tr- of the two term president. And I, I I I may be wrong about that, but I do recall that. And then of course Teddy Roosevelt. He was a he was a two term guy, and then he tried to run again under the Bull Moose Party. A lot of people remember that story. He didn't win, by the way. And then later on, another Roosevelt finally did break the mold. Franklin Roosevelt. And he was elected, I think he was, I think it was four times for that guy. He didn't survive his fourth term, but he was, uh, he was elected, I believe, four times. And that's why I, I absolutely detest that man to this day. If for no other reason than for that, because he, he broke the tradition. And frankly speaking, I consider that to be despicable. I don't care if there was a war going on. I, I frankly speaking, don't give a crap. He should have left. He should have kept the tradition going. He should have honored that out of respect for General Washington and everybody who came after him. He should have respected that and left, but he didn't. Because frankly speaking, I don't think he had any respect for the office. I don't think he had any respect for the institution. I don't think he had any respect for good government. Because good government would, would suggest that you follow that tradition and you leave when it's your time to leave. So the United States... Fairly quickly after that man was gone, came in and pushed through the 22nd Amendment to the Constitution, which limited the number of terms to two. Thank goodness. I'm glad for that, because it kept another Franklin Roosevelt from violating that tradition and disrespecting the office. And because, uh, again, to, to have good government, what, what have I said before? You have to have a government under control. And when you've got people, you know, thinking that they're, they're better than General Washington or they're better than a Thomas Jefferson or whoever— you know, they're better than everybody, and they can violate tradition and run for office and, and however many times they want. But honestly, that was the fault of the American people, wasn't it? Because the American people were the ones that elected the guy, and they shouldn't have. They should have known better. They should have looked at that and said, well, now, wait a minute. Didn't General Washington set a tradition that, you know, you're supposed to, you should serve two terms and then leave? Isn't that good government? You know, rotating these people out every once in a while so we don't end up with some guy up in there who thinks he's a king or a despot or a tyrant or something like that? But the American people forgot their place. They forgot their job. They forgot their responsibilities. Why? Well, probably a multitude of things. But part of it, I think, is is they um, they forgot their history. They didn't learn the lessons. 
And thankfully, the uh, the American people came in afterward and corrected that through their representatives by the Twenty Second Amendment, and I'm happy for that. That they kind of they they righted that wrong, so to speak. I, they really did because I think I think a great many people realized that it was wrong. It was wrong to do that. It was wrong to violate that tradition. And if we want to have good government, we have to keep this thing under control. And George Washington set a good precedent. He set a good rule. Let's keep that going. That's good government under control. Keep that government on a short leash. And how is it government gets off the leash? You know, it's not just forgetting history, the, the American people forgetting the lessons of history and electing some, some president who disrespects the office to a fourth term or a third term for that matter. It's not just that. It's also this, uh, there's one more thing I'll, I'll mention about that, you know, that, that really we need to pay attention to. If we want good government, we have to pay attention to this. Government is not there to clean up your messes. And government is not there to fix all your problems. That's not what government is for. You know, John Kennedy once said something that I think the country has largely forgotten, but it's a very famous quote. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My gosh, we've got we've fallen pretty far away from that, haven't we? One of my one of my pet peeves is uh, I've seen I've seen this happen a few times. During a presidential debate that's more of a town hall kind of setting where they take questions from the audience, you know, people, um, or any kind of ele- any kind of, it could be a presidential election, it could be any other kind of election too, where somebody comes out of the audience and literally asks the question, what are you going to do for me? And honestly, a, a president should, re- or a presidential candidate should respond, I'm going to do, to- I'm not going to do anything specifically for you. I'm not going to do anything for you. I'm going to follow the Constitution. And ind- you know, indirectly, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to do something for all of the American people, and I'm going to stick to that Constitution, and I'm going to keep government on a short leash, because that's the way it's supposed to be. And I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that I don't violate the Bill of Rights, but that's all I'm going to do for you. That's the job. Follow the Constitution. Follow the Bill of Rights. End of story. And defend the nation. Again, like I said, the president should be looking outward to defend the country from outside. That's his job. That's why he's a uh, commander-in-chief, by the way. They, did, they didn't make the president the head police officer for the United States. Did you notice that in the Constitution? It doesn't, it doesn't say that the president is the chief constable for the United States of America. Constable being a kind of policeman. That's a term they would have used back in the 1770s. Constable. They didn't make him chief constable, though, did they? No, they didn't. They made him, they made him commander-in-chief of the military. What's the military's chief role? To defend the United States from foreign aggressors, outside enemies. Interesting. Think about that. Anyway, so the American people really do have to get away from this uh, this love affair that they have with Uncle Sugar. I've, I've mentioned that term before. Uncle Sugar is kind of a joke. It's a euphemism for government that just runs around trying to solve all your problems or, or make your make your life easier or whatever whatever it is that uh, that people are expecting from government. You know, constantly throwing money at a problem, that kind of thing. Instead of actually fixing the problem, just throw money at it. That's kind of Uncle Sugar's way of doing things. And, you know, the danger of that is, you know, government always has the, a good side and a bad side. You know, we talk about good government and what that looks like. You know, when they when we get together and we build the things like the interstate highway system, that's fantastic. I, 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 thoroughly, I, I thoroughly enjoy that. Uh, that whole process of building things like that so that people can you know, travel, so communities are more connected and all the rest of it. That's that's just great. That's just good stuff all day long. And then the military, in some, you know, in most cases where it's a really good government there. So there, there is that good face to government, but there's always a dark side to government. And it's always there. It never goes away. It's just waiting for an opportunity to creep out, you know, out of the darkness. And when people start saying things like that, you know, when they start asking people in government, like, you know, like asking, especially a president, which is really bizarre, asking, what can you do for me? 
What they're really doing is they're they're enticing the dark side of government to come out of the shadows. Because Uncle, Sh- you know, the dark side of government loves that kind of stuff. They they love the Uncle Sugar concept of government. They really do. Because the the dark side of government, it'll always try to play on your your desire to um, have government do everything for you. It, the dark side of government wants to be empowered to do everything. Because if it does everything, then that means it controls everything. And that's that's what we call a good old-fashioned tyranny. And, you know, people start, you know, flirting with the dark side of government and asking it to do all these things that it really shouldn't be doing. Then you end up in this situation where, you know, the government's going to, the government will step forward and try to try to fit that, play that role. And, you know, Uncle Sugar is going to start whispering sweet nothings into your ear and promising you the world and, and all this stuff. But while you're not paying attention, that uh, that same Uncle Sugar that you think is promising you the world and whispering those sweet nothings into your ear, before you know it, is gonna have is gonna have its hands around your throat and its knee on your chest. Then what are you gonna do? And there's there's an old saying, you know, that comes to mind with this scenario. You ever you ever hear this old saying? You know, when you dance with the devil, the devil don't change; the devil changes you. See, if some of these folks think that you know when they try to they try to create a government that dances to their tune and does what they want it to do and cleans up their little messes and solves all their little problems. And and the government pretends to be that for you for a time. But in reality, you think you're changing that government to bend it towards you what you want it to be, when in reality, the government is really bending you to become what it wants you to be. And it eventually, again, has its hands on your throat and its knee on your chest. So try to stay away from that kind of government and orient yourself towards the good the good government. And that's that's a government that has a very clear mission. There is a mission there for good government. It's very clearly articulated in the Constitution of the United States. And it's limited in great measure by the Bill of Rights the, and the various other amendments. We talked about the 22nd Amendment. That's a, that's a limiting factor on government, more specifically the people who are in government, somebody, somebody who would aspire to the presidency. It's trying to control that person. Why? Because that person out of control is very dangerous. That's that dark side of government. The president who thinks he should just be there forever. That's very dark. That is a dark, dark side of government. You got to keep that under control. So thank goodness we have the 22nd Amendment. Thank goodness. Very smart idea. That's good government right there. So I hope that gives you some idea. Yes, government can be good. And yes, there is such a thing as good government. The United States has seen a lot of that. Thank goodness. The United States has probably seen more good government than almost any other country on the planet. But if we want to keep that, if we want to maintain that good government, then we have to be very, very cautious. And we have to keep a watchful eye. We have to be, we the people, have to be the watchful guardians of our rights and our liberties because nobody else is going to do it. If you're counting on government to do it, you're wasting your time. The only reason anybody in government ever is going to watch over your rights and liberties is is if you just hold their feet to the fire. You have to. You have to hold them accountable. And then then maybe they will. But if you don't do that, they won't. And we have to be educated. We have to be a well-educated people. You know, the Founding Fathers created as good a government as they did because they were well-read and they understood history. They knew about the Roman Empire. They knew about the Greeks. And they knew what went wrong with the British Empire. And they, they looked at the various other republics that were in Europe at the time. And they studied all these things. And we've we, we've we've seen situations in these letters where Abigail Adams and her friends are quoting lines from about Greece and uh, King Philip of Macedon, and we're we're listening to William Tudor and John Adams talk back and forth to each other at times in Latin using Latin quotations. Why? How are they doing that? Because they studied their history. 
That's the only reason why they were ever able to form any kind of a decent government. And the only way we are going to keep a good government is if we study history also. We have to know the history. And if we don't, it's going to be gone. That problem that I told you about before, you know, the scenario with the, uh, the kid, you know, the 18-year-old kid looking for his first job, and how he has to understand math and reading to be able to jockey a register at Burger King, but he doesn't have to understand history. The problem is, again... It's very quick and easy to find the problems that manifest themselves if you don't know math and reading. It's very quick to find those problems. However, it takes a long time for the problems to, to manifest themselves that stem from a lack of understanding of history and an ignorant population of people who have no concept what history is. It takes a long time for those problems to manifest themselves. It's a slow burn. But when that problem really digs into society, it's really bad. It's world-changing. It's society ending. That's how deep that problem can be. And that's why the, you know, the, the wise old men from the past issue warnings from history, saying things like, those who do not understand history are doomed to repeat it, because they know how dangerous this is. You're playing with fire. We have to study history. Have to. If we don't, we, cannot, we, can't, we can't have good government. We're just living on borrowed time. To the extent we do have good government, we're just living on borrowed time. And that only lasts so long, and then eventually it, it dies out. So let's not be living on borrowed time. Let's study the history, let's understand it, and let's keep good government real. Let's, let's keep it in the real world. Not just a thought, not just a theory. Not just something in the past that we talk about. So to that end, I want to thank you for joining me on this podcast. And I want to thank you for getting the word out and spreading the word about the podcast too. I really appreciate that. It says a lot about you that you're here listening to this kind of material, that you're that you're reading the letters of the Founding Fathers with me on this uh, study group, as I call it, this podcast. Whether you're in the United States or whether you're in another country, there's always something to be learned from this. Again, these concepts are borderless. Uh, these thoughts that the Founding Fathers had on good government, they, uh, they span borders. Any country could take these lessons and apply them. And other countries have, not just the United States. There's plenty of other good countries out there that have taken some of these lessons and applied them to their own governments and their own societies uh, to great effect. So let's uh, let's carry on that uh, that let's carry on that tradition. Let's keep the train going. Let's keep studying this history, and I, I, I look forward to the next episode. And I certainly hope that all of you folks are there with me uh, to uh, to read some more of the letters and to study this stuff, such as we do. So thank you very much. And with all that said, this is Roman signing off. Thank you. <laughs>